Johnny was born in 1950, so she's 67 years old now. And she was, grew up in America. Um, she had a very typical sort of family upbringing. Her parents were Christians, and she had three older sisters. She was the youngest. Her father was a really outdoorsy sort of person. He loved sort of horses and um, outback riding, and he took his family on all sorts of like adventure treks and things like that. So she had a very active upbringing. She was really into athletics. She was very into sport. Um, her whole family was, and, and she had a, kind of an ideal sort of uh, childhood, I guess, with lots of adventure and, and so on. And um, so there, there you can see, uh, these are a couple of early pictures of her. And she, with her Christian upbringing, of course, she went to church, she had Sunday school and all of these types of things. But uh, really, all of this did not make much of an impact on her at all. So um, she... Although she would say she was a Christian, there was nothing in her life that suggested that she really had understood what it is to follow Christ. And um, she, in her teenage years, she found that she was, um, I guess, seeking meaning in other things. So she was really, uh, she was a popular sort of girl, and she started looking for meaning in that, in popularity, in, in being sort of uh, amongst uh, many friends and having the right boyfriend and going to having the right date and all of these types of things. And she lost herself in that for a while. But then she started to get really uh, good with her sport and things like horse riding and stuff like that. And she, she started to become really quite elite in some of the sports she, she did. She played lacrosse and tennis. And so she started to look for meaning in that, in the discipline of sport and training and so on. Um, but when she was about 15 years old, she, um, she went to this camp. It was like a youth camp, a very big youth camp. And she, she, it was a Christian sort of uh, camp. And she, she really begged her parents to go, only because her friends were going and she wanted the social scene. Um, but when she went there, uh, she heard a speaker talk about the gospel. And this was nothing new to her. She had, of course, heard this many, many times. But this guy talked about how Really, you know, God's standard is so high. And if we think about the Ten Commandments, there is no way we can possibly meet that standard. And for the first time, Johnny realized her sin in a very personal way. And she uh, was very much affected by what the speaker also talked about, which was abundant life and how the Lord came to give us abundant life. And for her, previously, um, before this camp, Abundant life meant good network of friends, you know, uh, you know, good achievements on the sporting field, good grades, all of that kind of stuff was abundant life to her. But when she came to this camp, she realized that all her thinking had been so wrong and actually abundant life was not things for herself, but, you know, the Lord was talking about himself. That's what he was talking about. And for the first time, although she'd heard so many times that, the gospel message, it struck a chord in her life. And on that night, she left that particular meeting. She went out, uh, everyone else went back to their cabins, but she uh, went out, sat outside under a tree, and she just said to the Lord, Lord, all these years I've sort of known of you, but at least now I know you, and please come into my life and change me and forgive me. And that night, she became a child of God. And she ran back to the cabin and told her best friend, Jackie, and she said, I've become a Christian, and I've really become a Christian. 
and her friends didn't really understand what she was going on about, but Johnny herself knew that she'd been transformed. That was when she was 15. Now, uh, after this time, you know, she, she, I guess she expected that she would grow and that she would change. But as she started in the senior school years of high school, like, you know, their equivalent of our year 11 and 12, she started again to get distracted. Um, and things weren't going so well for her, you know, like she had a lot of friendship issues, there were lots of jealousies, lots of problems at school. She started, you know, getting into fights with her sisters and with her parents and things weren't great at home. And although she, on the outside, you know, she was going okay at school and she, you know, the big deal of the exams and the application to the right college, all of that seemed to be going well for her. So on the outside, she looked like she was, her life was together and, you know, she was able to get to college and all of that kind of stuff. But on the inside, she was really frustrated because she felt like her life, you know, she, she was a Christian, she'd given her life to the Lord, and yet she wasn't going anywhere, and she was actually slipping back into old habits. And she was being distracted and irritated by things that previously she wasn't bothered by. And so she was really in a place of frustration. One day she took her horse out for a ride, and she, when she came back from this ride, she said to the Lord, Lord, you've got to do something in my life. You've got to get my attention. You've got to turn me around. Do something so that my life can be in some way for you. And that was her prayer that afternoon. Now, it was the summer holidays, and uh, this is a bay near, near where uh, Johnny grew up, I guess. And uh, it was summer holidays, that lovely time between the end of the equivalent of year 12 and the beginning of college. So she was so free. And she was, um, it was a hot summer's day, and she was at this particular bay with her uh, older sister, Kathy. And the two of them were just um, swimming around and so on. And Johnny decided to run along the rocks there, and she dived into the water. The minute she dived, she realized that the water was a lot shallower than she thought, and her head hit the bottom. Um, and as her head hit the bottom, the impact was so severe that she sort of felt herself actually, her body sort of sprawled out of control, and she flipped back. And then she, after this strange feeling of, she, she, she described it like an electric buzz all the way through her body. But she didn't feel any pain. And after that, she was in the water and she actually felt her head sort of against the sand at the bottom of this bay. And then she felt like her arms and her legs had been caught and she'd been tied in, in some sort of a net. And she actually thought, what have I done? Have I dived into a net? Have I been caught in something? And she tried like, to move herself and she couldn't get free. And then she realized that she was running out of breath. You know, she'd taken one breath to do this dive and now she was still underwater and she felt like she was caught in this kind of net. And she couldn't, she couldn't do anything. And she used all her strength and willpower to try and break free, but she couldn't. And then she thought, where's my sister? She, did she see me even dive? Meanwhile, her sister Kathy was wading out into this bay and had a back to Johnny. And uh, suddenly a little crab bit her toe. And she was like, ah, like this. 
And she turned around to call to Johnny and say, there are crabs in here. And when she turned around, she couldn't see her sister. And she thought, you were there a minute ago. And so she started walking and she saw Johnny just lying in the water, sort of her body was just sprawled, just lying face down. And she, she said, what are you doing, Johnny? Get up. Are you just looking for shells? And Johnny heard these muffled sounds and she was desperate. She, was, she wanted to turn over and she, she couldn't. She was just lying there in the water and, and she said, she was hoping like, Kathy, Kathy, come on, lift me up. I can't breathe. And at that point, Johnny was actually so out of oxygen that she actually started to black out. And Kathy was just standing there going, what are you doing? And then finally, Kathy realised when a little wave came and just kind of sort of rocked Johnny's body and Johnny wasn't moving, Kathy suddenly realised something was wrong and she kind of lifted Johnny out of the water. And it was just in time because Johnny had just started to lose consciousness and that sort of point of bringing her up out of the water just made her suddenly come back. And when Johnny sort of came back and she sort of looked around and she was, Kathy was sort of holding her in the water like she turned her over and she was like, what, what are you doing, Johnny? Did you dive in here? And Johnny said, Kathy, I can't move. And Kathy was like, what do you mean? And Johnny had looked and she had thought that her legs and her arms were caught in a net, but they weren't. They were actually just floating by her side. And she had actually felt she was like this, but actually she wasn't. And she started to get very scared. And Kathy held her arm and said, don't worry. And then Johnny said, Kathy, I can't feel you. And Kathy was like, what do you mean? And she's like pinched her arm. And Johnny said, I can't feel you. I can't feel anything. And then Kathy realized that something terrible had happened. And so she quickly got some help, called an ambulance. An ambulance came. People were like running from everywhere along, to the, along the beach and crowding around Johnny and Johnny was thinking, what has happened to me? What, why can't I feel anything? Why does it feel like I'm tied up? And nobody could give her any answers. The paramedics came, people were just rushing and she was piled onto this stretcher and rushed to the emergency department of a local hospital. And again, you know, Johnny kept sort of saying, well, you know, what's happened to me? And again, you know, people were just rushing around, nurses here, doctors there. And she was put on a stretcher and uh, a nurse came with scissors and was cutting off her swimming costume. And Johnny said, stop, no, th this is my new swimming costume. I've only worn it today. And the nurse said, sorry, this is regulation. You're going into surgery. And, and Johnny said, what, but, but aren't I going home later today? And the nurse just said, don't ask me anything. You have to talk to the doctor. And she said, well, what's happening? But no one would kind of give her an answer. She heard words like fracture, dislocation, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And then there was an um, anaesthetist who came and, and explained that he would be putting her to sleep because she'd have to go into an operation. And she was, like, hearing all this stuff. And this person came, put a needle in her. And then another nurse came and started to shave off her hair. And Johnny said, what are you doing? No, don't shave her. And this nurse said, sorry, you know, we have to. You're going into surgery. And Johnny thought, what has happened? But... In all her panic, she started to sink into a very deep sleep. So Johnny had an operation. And when she sort of came to again, uh, she found herself in an intensive care unit. And there was a lot, she had a lot of pain on the side of her head, on this side. 
And she couldn't move at all. She couldn't turn her head from side to side. She couldn't even nod. And she found herself lying on some sort of a stretcher. And she had, there was like canvas on top of her, canvas below her. And she, she understood later, um, didn't understand at the time, but she couldn't see very much. She understood later she was in something called a striker frame. Now this, was, this is fairly old, I think. They, don't, they have something similar now, but they don't, it's not as brutal as this, I think. This is a, like a metal frame for people with very, very severe spinal injuries. You see, if you have a spinal injury, it's very, you can't just turn and move because you could actually uh, damage more nerves and, and really uh, put yourself at further risk. So what they do is they actually drill something into your skull and they attach these metal, this metal sort of frame to it, which is then attached to this metal frame here. And uh, there's canvas on the top, canvas below. And pretty much what happens is the nurses can turn the patient without causing any damage because the patient is totally immobilized on this particular frame. Johnny found herself in something like this. And she, she was really scared. She had no idea what had happened to her. She had just had this operation. She was in a, a huge amount of pain. And she found herself in this kind of frame. And every two hours, as she soon established, a nurse would come and would flip her so that instead of facing the ceiling like this, she would be facing the floor. And the reason they did this was simply because of pressure sores. You know, if you're lying down all the time, then your body starts to, you know, circulation issues and you end up with these horrible sores all over your body. So every two hours she would be flipped. And she talked about it like feeling, she, she really felt like a steak on a barbecue, just being flipped every two hours. And it was horrible. She, and at this point, she was on a lot of medication and a lot of painkillers, so she, was, um, she wasn't even all there. She started hallucinating. Sometimes she didn't know whether what was real, what was not. She was in a lot of pain at times, and they had to up the medication. But after a while, in intensive care, when she started to sort of get a bit more sense of her surroundings, she found it a really, really scary place. Here she was in intensive care. She still didn't know exactly what had happened. She had heard words, but she hadn't, nobody had actually explained in clear English what had happened to her. But there was um, people being wheeled in and out all the time. There was a boy that came in who was about her age, 17 years old. And um, this boy called Tom, as you know, they, they'd sort of tried to talk to each other and exchange kind of, you know, greetings and so on. This boy called Tom had broken his neck. And at the time, Johnny didn't realise that she'd broken her neck, so she'd sort of heard about Tom and thought, oh, goodness. And uh, Tom was on a ventilator. And this was a really noisy machine to help him breathe. And at first, you know, Johnny found it really scary just sleeping next to this huge machine that was always whirring away. But then one night, this ventilator stopped. And Johnny, that silence was more scary than the sound of the machine. And she, uh, she, she wanted to scream out, but the nurses had rushed in and she heard the nurses say that you know, something's gone wrong with the ventilator and they were sort of unplugging things and trying to res resuscitate this little boy called Tom. And then, you know, doctors were running in here and there. And then Johnny heard one of the doctors say, oh, we've lost him. And then a sheet was pulled over Tom's face and he was wheeled out. 
And Johnny suddenly realised the place she was in. Here was a place where people died. And, you know, her first experience was the boy Tom, who was next to her. But then after Tom had gone, somebody else came, and this man was in the exact same frame that she was in. And he kept saying to the nurses, I can't breathe, don't turn me, I can't breathe. And the nurses kept saying, you'll get used to it, it's okay, you'll get used to it, we have to turn you every two hours. But his breathing was so laboured when he was facing the floor, and one day his breathing just stopped. And the nurses came in again, and they realised what had happened, they turned him over, they tried to resuscitate him, but again a doctor came in and said, no, we've lost him. And he was wheeled out. So Johnny was in a perpetual state of fear. She realised the seriousness of her situation and her injury, and she realised that she too could be one of those people who they pull the sheet over her face and wheel her out. At this point, though, she had survived in intensive care for close to four weeks, and finally she was out of what they, the doctors called like the danger zone, and she was able to come out and go and transfer into a normal ward. Um, in intensive care, you know, you, you can't have many visitors, only, only close family, and there was very short visits and only one person at a time. So she was alone for a lot of the time. But now at least she had her own ward, people could come and she had visitors and so on. And she spent a lot of time with her big sister, Jay. She was really close to Jay. And Jay tried everything. Jay would lie on the floor when Johnny was facing the floor and they'd have conversations like that. You know, she'd hold magazines on the floor so Johnny could read them and she was, she was really good. Um, but people came, you know, her friends came to visit, and people would say to her, you know, don't worry, Johnny. You know, remember the verse that says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And she would say, you're telling me that this is good? You're telling me that somehow this is, this is going to work well for me? And everyone was trying to comfort her with these verses, and she would just say, how is this comforting? It's all right for you. You're not stuck in this metal frame being toasted every two hours like a steak. And she really felt like all of this scripture that she had uh, heard and also that people were giving her was totally irrelevant to her situation. Now. now, after a few weeks, she was strong enough to have what the doctors called fusion surgery. She didn't know much about this. But this, she clung on to this as another, another bit of hope. She thought to herself, you know, if I can you know, get through this surgery, maybe then I can get some intensive physio and I'm going to learn again how to walk, how to use my legs and my arms, and, and then I can start my life again. And even her parents were holding on to this hope and they were really, um, they were really I guess, desperate that you know, the surgery would go well and then she would be able to sort of you know, they'd do everything to get her into intensive physio and all this. They had a lot of hope placed in the surgery. And uh, the doctor came in and explained to her that um, what had happened was she'd broken her neck, and for you medical people, between C4 and C5. And she'd actually severed her spinal cord. And uh, the doctors kind of explained what they were going to do in the surgery. But Johnny wasn't hearing anything. She was just hearing the fact that she would get through the surgery and then she would have a chance to learn how to walk again. The surgery was successful, and she managed to um, come out of uh, intensive care again, and it all was going well. And the doctors were very happy. And they called a little meeting between the parents, Johnny, and the, the key doctors. 
And uh, the parents were so happy when they heard that the surgery had been successful. Um, and they said to, they said to the doctor, look, um, you know, we, we have deferred her college uh, fees. Um, we, obviously, we sort of paid for semester one, but we, we're going to try and defer that to semester two. Do you think that'll be enough time? And the doctor sort of just looked at the parents and looked at Johnny and said, Johnny won't be going to college. And the parents said, what do you mean? Semester two is like six months away. And the doctor said, oh dear. He said, Johnny's injury is permanent. She's not going to walk again. And that was the first time someone had told Johnny straight what her injury was. And she was shattered, and her parents were too. They, they couldn't believe that this, that this accident had resulted in a permanent injury. And her parents, for Johnny's sake, just kind of kept it together. But Johnny was really angry and defiant. And she said, Mom, don't you worry. I'm going to walk out of this place. I'm going to prove those doctors wrong. And her parents couldn't say anything, and, and they ended up leaving. But they only just left outside in the corridor and both parents just broke down and cried because they had no idea of the severity of this injury. The doctor kept talking to Johnny and saying, look, look, okay, your, your injury is permanent. You can't walk again, but don't worry. You can lead a normal life. You know, many people are in wheelchairs and you'll probably get the use of your hands back and your arms and you'll be able to lead a normal life. It's, you know, it, it, it'll be okay. And you'll learn things. That, and Johnny just could not hear it. At this point, she was in a very weak state physically. She was still in this frame, uh, even after, a bit after the surgery. Um, and the surgery was simply there just to prevent further injury, I guess. Um, and it meant that she could be out of that frame eventually. But uh, she hadn't eaten for a good several months now. And um, she was, it was probably about a good two months. She couldn't tolerate solid food at all. So she was literally fed through a drip, through needles. And um, she, she was really malnourished, um, and she was really weak. And um, although she had visitors coming in and out, she noticed that people were really awkward around her. You know, she had her school friends come and visit her, um, and because it, it was summer holidays and everything, she, she had all these school friends come, and, and people kind of came once and didn't come again or kind of came and were really awkward, didn't know what to say, and were like, oh, we're so sorry, and just left. And then she had, on, on one day, she had these two, uh, two friends of hers came to visit. And the first one came in, like, and they both came in together, and, and the first one said, like, just came up to Johnny, and just, she couldn't, she couldn't hold it back. She just said, oh, dear God, like that. And then the other one just stared at Johnny, and then she ran out of the room, and she actually threw up in the bin outside. And Johnny thought, what is wrong with people? Why are people, are they just so squeamish around hospitals? They don't like hospitals? What is wrong? And then she talked to her really good friend, Jackie. Now, Jackie had, was almost like family. She had come, she'd been a really good friend, and she'd come almost every day to see Johnny. And she said to her friend, Jackie, she said, get me a mirror. I want to see what I look like. Because Johnny realised she hadn't even looked at herself for several months. And so Jackie got a little handheld mirror and held it up in front of Johnny's face. 
And Johnny just looked at herself and she just said, God, what have you done to me? The reflection looking back at her was like a skeleton. Her skin had gone really yellow because she was really malnourished. Her eyes were bloodshot and really sunken. And she had these kind of like these metal things in the side of her head which were attached to the, to the frame. And her head had been shaved, so she, her hair had sort of started growing back. And it was really matted. And then her teeth had actually gone black as a side effect of some of the medication. And she looked at herself and she just thought, she actually said to Jackie, I'm dying, aren't I? I'm dying. And Jackie just couldn't bear it. She just, just cried. This started a bit of a spiral of depression. Because, you know, day after day after day, Johnny was um, stuck in this hospital. People would come and go. But, you know, she, she felt like her life was completely meaningless. She was fed on a drip. She was emptied by a catheter. And uh, there she was, stuck in a metal frame, flipped every so often. And she had quite a lot of pain as well. And she just sort of felt... Like she, she also had a lot of nightmares from, as a side effect of medication. And so she wasn't sleeping well. And she just, just went into this massive spiral of real depression to the point where she said to her friend Jackie one day, she said, you have to kill me because I am afraid to live. How can I live like this? If this is my life, this is no life, I would be much better dead. And she really put a lot of pressure on her friend Jackie and said, you've got to do something. And she even said, you know, slit my wrists. I won't even feel it. I can't even feel my hands. So you could slit my wrists and, and it would be fine. You know, give me something. Give me an overdose. And she used to beg and say this stuff to Jackie all the time. And Jackie kept saying, no, I, I can't. What, you can't. What are you asking me to do? Of course I can't. And Johnny was almost angry and she was frustrated that she was in such a state of dependence that she couldn't even kill herself. And she needed someone else to help her. On top of this, the side effect of some of this medication meant that she had, her eyes were very sensitive and she always needed to be in sort of a dim, dark room. Not only that, her hearing got really sensitive. So if someone made a loud noise, it actually sort of like gave a sharp pain in her head. And so one day, as Jackie was visiting um, very faithfully, Jackie dropped something and it clattered to the ground. And Johnny got so angry and she started swearing at Jackie and yelling at her and abusing her. And Jackie stood there and just cried. And Johnny was like, and she heard herself. She just, she just suddenly realised what an ugly person she'd become and how self-focused she'd become and how she had just let all this frustration and anger out on this one girl who had so faithfully visited her every day. But that was a turning point because at that point, when she saw that ugliness, she turned back to God and she said to the Lord, I have no idea what you're doing to me right now, but somehow, Lord, make this accident turn into something for your good. And that was a point when she started to change. It wasn't overnight. Her depression didn't just disappear, but she managed to climb out of it a little bit. It was a very difficult time over the next few weeks because her friends started to move away and go to college. They were starting university. 
she was still stuck in the metal frame. And, of course, this also meant that Jackie was going to move away. She was starting college in another state somewhere else. And all these close friends who had really um, been a great help to her started to be so far away it wasn't practical for them to visit. And so, you know, it was, it was very difficult. And again, she, she felt herself be, feeling really angry because, you know, they would come, and, but they would say, oh, I can be there at six, but they, they wouldn't be able to get there till eight. And, you know, and she had only a short time with them. People couldn't come. And, and she, again, felt really sort of alone and neglected. And it was a very, very difficult time for her. But at also around this time, the doctors kind of decided that she was well enough to go to a place called Green Oaks. Green Oaks was a rehab centre where you would have intensive physio and it was just kitted out for spinal patients. People had broken their neck or, or some, had some sort of spinal injury. And so, again, you know, this was, this was exciting for Johnny. It was a change in her very mundane kind of existence. And so, you know, the date had been set. She was going to go to this place. And in her mind, she was thinking about Green Oaks. She was thinking about, you know, the physio room. She'd be working hard. She'd, she'd really work hard if she couldn't walk again. She would at least get her hands back again. Or maybe she would defy the doctors and be able to walk again. She imagined looking out of the physio room onto the green hills and seeing the oak trees. And she had all this kind of thought about this place, and it was going to be the start of a new chapter. She was going to sort of prove those doctors wrong. And on the day when she got there, this place called Green Oaks was anything but green. And it was, in fact, a very drab, pretty old institution. Um, it was kitted out for people like her, but it was really understaffed. And when she got there, all of this stuff that she built up in her mind about this place kind of just vanished. And she just thought, oh, what am I going to do here? And then she was wheeled in from her, her bed, her sort of hospital bed. She was wheeled into this room, and she was going to share a room with four other girls. Um, and she, when she got there, you know, these girls weren't particularly happy that there was going to be an extra person in their room. They didn't greet her very warmly. They all had similar injuries. They were all a similar age, and often tragic kind of injuries, car accidents, things like that. When she got into the room and kind of was um, worked out where she'd be and all this sort of stuff, one of the girls was sat by the window smoking. And Johnny hated the smell of cigarette smoke. And she, she said to this girl, you know that's going to cause you, you know that's going to give you lung cancer and you'll probably die. And this girl said to Johnny, honey, why do you think I'm smoking? And that was kind of the attitude of this place. People were there, and as Johnny found out, there have been people who've been there for years, two years, three years, and they were still in these frames, the, the striker frame thing, they were still in sort of strapped into wheelchairs, and she looked around and thought, this is not what I thought. You know, she, she had thought it would be intensive, she'd be there for a few months, she'd make all these games, and she was looking around at all these people who were still sort of stuck in these frames. They, were, they themselves had no hope. And she was scared that she too would become like them. The routine at this rehab place was difficult. You know, the nurses were so understaffed and so busy that she had to learn to eat really quickly. Because if she didn't eat her food quickly and just not talk, then they would move on. So if she sort of made some sort of light conversation with the nurse, she wouldn't get fed. 
That's how time poor they were. They, there was no time for anything but the bare basics. And she really struggled with this routine. In the morning, a nurse would come and feed her. Ten minutes, you know, done. And then someone would empty her catheter bag. Then somebody would adjust the mirror so that she could watch the TV. And that was it. Morning, noon, night. That was the routine. And it was just a sickening cycle. And Johnny really, really struggled to understand what the meaning or the purpose of her life at this place would ever be. One day, like, uh, Jay came to visit. Uh, Jay was really good, her older sister. And she came to visit, and she was sitting next to Johnny, and she just said, what's that smell? And she started, like, looking around and everything, and then she said, Johnny, it's your hair. And then Johnny realised that the nurses hadn't had time to wash her hair, and she'd been at that place for one month. And so her hair, which had sort of grown now and was sort of longer, had not been even touched for a month. And so Jay grabbed some basin and she got the hand soap and she was just, you know, washing Johnny's hair. And all the other girls were like, can you do us as well? And Jay ended up sort of taking his face around washing and then the next day she brought shampoo and she was doing everyone's hair. But she did a lot to really lift the spirits of that place because Johnny started to think more about her appearance and, and all the other girls as well really appreciated this. When physio finally started, Johnny was very excited. She thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to start learning how to walk again. We'll be good. But then her first lesson, she couldn't believe it. She thought it would be something really exciting. But her first lesson was that she had to try and sit up. Not even up straight, but at about a 30-degree angle. That was it. That, that was her lesson. And she thought, what? But she was strapped onto this tilt board, and it was sort of lying flat, and then the physio just put it up slightly. And the minute it went up slightly... Johnny yelled at the physician and said, stop, stop, because she started getting dizzy and she felt like she was going to vomit. And the physio said, see, this is why we need to do this. You have to learn to tolerate actually sort of sitting up because you've been about six, oh, more than six months lying flat. Your body, your heart has actually forgotten how to circulate blood. And now you actually have to relearn how to sit up. And Johnny kind of realised the, the road ahead was not what she imagined. For week after week, she just had to try and endure, just kind of endure a 30-degree angle, 40-degree angle, and so on. And that was, that was it. Like, that was all she could manage. And it was gruelling for her, and she would black out, and she would vomit, and it was, and, you know, she would... It was really horrible. But finally, she managed to tolerate just sitting up like you are all sitting up here. She managed to tolerate it and she didn't faint, she didn't vomit or anything. And so this was a real victory for her. And to celebrate, they said to her, you can go home for one day now because you can sit up. And so the family were really excited about this and they chose Christmas Day as the day that she would go home and spend the day at home and then she, of course she would have to come back to the hospital. Again, Johnny was really looking forward to this. Another step forward. But um, when she went home and she was sort of wheeled in on the bed and the bed was now upright, she was actually sitting up, she could see her legs 
and her legs, all her muscles had wasted away and they were just these bones sticking out. And she found it really repulsive to look at. And then she saw everyone else was sat at the table and she was sort of sat up apart on this bed. And she found again, like, she just thought being here at home brought back all these memories. And she remembered her last Christmas and she remembered running out into the snow and she remembered going over to her neighbours and snowball fights and, and now she was stuck on this bed. She couldn't even go upstairs to her room. And all of that just made it almost too much to bear. Just everything that she'd lost kind of came flooding back. And she tried to be really cheery and happy because, you know, lots of people had turned out to come and see her and make the day good and fun for her, but it just wasn't the same. When she got back, she was, again, just... It sort of started another spiral into real depression. Um, and on top of that, her day back at home had opened up a lot of the bed sores. She, she did get these bed sores. And after being at home and sitting up for a whole day, all of these sores on her back and her hip, because she was so underweight still, kind of all opened up and she was bleeding all over. And so, of course, she was back in the striker frame. And so there, you know, after her one day of going back home, she found herself back for weeks in that frame. And this was a very difficult thing for her to bear. And again, she started to have these thoughts about suicide. And she was really, really frustrated. She realised to herself that she wasn't really going to get better. And all those things that she'd enjoyed were gone forever. And again, she just wished that she could kill herself. And the frustration of the fact that she couldn't even take her own life was almost too much for her to bear. Around the same time, the physio started recommending that she go to occupational therapy. And, you know, Johnny absolutely refused because she knew about occupational therapy. They were going to teach her to uh, write with her mouth, like put a pencil in her mouth and draw and write or or use things, turn things with something in her mouth. And she just thought that was degrading. She was going to get the use of her hands back. She didn't need this, uh, this occupational therapy to get around her injury. She was going to deal with the injury. And she was defiant that she would not be going. And um, they, they really tried to encourage her, but she would not. Around the same time, she had two friends. One was a boy called Jim. He was a young guy. Pretty well educated, actually, probably a bit older than Johnny. Um, may have been about 19 or 20. He was also paraplegic, um, but he was uh, an atheist, and a very strong atheist. He read a lot of philosophers, both ancient and modern, and he was—he filled his head with this, and he started talking to Johnny. And this this time, you know, Johnny was really open to hearing other stuff, and she really kind of just drank in everything he said. He told her, you know, life, life has meaning for the people who are able-bodied, the people who can walk around and do things, because life, you know, essentially it's, it's about happiness. And if you can pursue happiness, that's, that's your meaning in life. But for people like us, we're so dependent, we can't even feed ourselves, so of course life doesn't have any meaning. There is no hope, and life is completely purposeless. And Johnny kind of took all this on board. And she started to really kind of believe it. 
But there was something in her that made her feel like this wasn't right. That it, it doesn't, didn't make sense. And there was something in her that made her hang on to the fact that God is real and God is true. So she found herself in a great confusion. She almost desperately wanted to forget about God. But there was something in her that wouldn't let her. One night she was really kind of in a lot of turmoil with her thoughts. Um, she'd been reading. She'd actually borrowed all these books from Jim and she'd been reading all this stuff. She hadn't read the Bible for a long time. And she, she then sort of said to God, almost in an angry way, she said, you know, you got me here. You better prove your existence. If you really exist, you better prove yourself to me. And that night... There wasn't anything big or miraculous. There wasn't any bright flashes or anything like that. No visions. But just as she went to sleep, a verse came very strongly into her mind. And it was the verse that said, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And she hadn't read that verse for a long time. And she really felt that God had proved his existence in this little way by giving her that little verse. And she slept peacefully, first time for a long time. At this same point, she, her other friend was a school friend that had not gone to college. Her name was Diana. And she had also recently become a Christian. She was a fairly new, new believer. And she found her, her gift in visiting Johnny and helping the other girls. And she, she really enjoyed this kind of work. And so she started to volunteer at this rehab center. And so she saw Johnny quite a lot. And at this time, you know, with all this stuff that Jim was sort of feeding Johnny, um, Diana was almost like the sounding board. She would sit and listen, and Johnny would say, you know, life is meaningless. That you, you have meaning. You can make meaning in your life. But me, I can't. And she would talk like this. And Diana used to listen, and she used to sort of say to Johnny, what, what about this verse? What about that verse? But one thing Diana really did was said to Johnny, you know, you're, you keep thinking about the future. Why don't you just think about what you can do now? Why don't you just go to OT and occupational therapy? And why don't you actually just try? How about you, you give it a go? Put, get, learn how to, to write or draw or something. And Diana kind of pestered Johnny about this. And finally, just to shut Diana up, she kind of went. And she went to OT and she started to put a pencil in her mouth and learn to draw and learn to write. And this again was another turning point because it distracted her from all this negativity that she sort of immersed herself in. And she started to um, really try and express herself and write and draw and do all this kind of stuff. And it really helped her get out of that spiral of depression. And as she was doing this, she, she realized a couple of things. First thing she realized was that, in fact, all the human race was caught in the same sickening cycle that she was. But just for her, it was much more obvious. You see, everybody was just eating, sleeping, new day, eat, sleep, new day. But you see, for everyone else, there were a whole lot of other distractions which, to which people attribute meaning. But perhaps there isn't any. But because her life had been reduced to the absolute bare essentials of survival, for her, the purposelessness of life was very clear. 
And she also realised that before her accident, she, she really didn't need the Lord Jesus. But now, because of her physical helplessness, it really highlighted to her her spiritual need. Her spiritual need that had always been there, but now it was much clearer. And she realised that everybody has the same spiritual need, but because their physical needs are not the same, they're distracted from it. And this was a really important thing that she started to realise. And she'd been so angry about this previously. But now the Lord was teaching her that these things are not... And it's not something that she needs to be angry about. In fact, she should be grateful that she's realised something that's been there all along. So she really started to learn how to draw with her mouth. Now, she was pretty good at art beforehand. She'd done art at school. She was interested in art. And so she really took to expressing herself through art. And she used to draw sketches. She wrote things. She made cards. And she started to think about other people. And she signed everything with Johnny, PTL, praise the Lord. Because she kind of realized that through her art, the Lord had really helped her be able to come out of a real state of pretty bad, severe depression. Now, another year passed, and I'm skipping over a lot here. But um, finally, after about two years of rehab, she was going to go home. And, of course, this was huge. This was another big, big step for her. And she was really excited that she would finally be at home. She would finally, you know, be able to sort of settle into a normal life. But, you know, before she went, she still hadn't got the use of her hands. She sort of had the use of her arms. She used her shoulder muscles. She retrained her shoulder muscles to try and sort of lift her hands like this. Or arms, sorry. She could kind of do that. But she really couldn't use her hands. And she talked to the doctor about this. And the doctors kind of said to her again, well, you know, we've, we've had a look and we've looked at different scans. You're not going to get the use of your hands back. That is also permanent. And so she was left again with this sort of sickening blow that she would not only never, ever walk again, but she would also never get the use of her hands back. And so she realized that as long as she lived, she would be a quadriplegic, completely dependent on everyone else. Things were not that great at home either. For her, um, when she got back home, it was actually a really, really tough time for the Erickson family. Her sister Jay, who was older than her and had been married, her marriage had completely fallen apart. And so she was divorced and she was now the single mom of a little toddler. Uh, she was really struggling. And her older sister Linda had a six-year-old girl who had been diagnosed with a brain tumour. And only a few, like probably about nine months after Johnny came home, this little six-year-old girl died. And it was really crushing for the family and really difficult for her older sister, Linda, to the point where actually Linda's marriage fell apart because of the grief of the loss of their child. And so Linda, too, um, was really struggling. So the family had a very, very tough time that year when Johnny came back home. And it was, it was really hard for her to readjust. When she came home, it brought back to her all the things she would never, ever be able to do again. She would never be able to feel the, the feeling of water on her body, you know, on a hot day when you dive into the pool. She couldn't feel anything, and she would never be able to feel that. She'd never be able to ride a horse. She'd never even be able to, to really sort of, um, 
you know, she wouldn't even be able to sort of run in the grass, play her sport, all of this kind of stuff that had been such a big part of her identity and her life. She just realised all of these sensations are gone to her forever. And she really struggled with that and hung on to the past. And she fell again into really quite a severe depression. She wouldn't come out of her room. She stayed in a dark room all the time. And she concentrated herself on trying to remember all those things she'd done and all the feelings of things, the feelings of winning, the feeling of you know, running, the feeling of um, being sweaty and tired, all of this. She really tried to kind of hold on to those past sensations and, and emotions. And again, she, she really struggled to get out of this. Her friend Diana was really, really faithful again and kept coming and visiting her. But Donnie just would not respond. And finally, you know, one day Diana really just snapped. And Johnny was sat there and Diana was talking to her and Johnny was just staring past her and wasn't even giving any sort of response. And Diana just, just she just really kind of broke down and she said, Johnny, the past is dead, but you are alive. And again, just this moment kind of woke Johnny up a little bit. And thanks to Diana, she kind of realised what she was doing. She was hanging on to a past that could never come back. And she really needed to stop and to start looking forward. And so again she prayed, and she hadn't prayed for a long time. And she said to the Lord, don't know what you can possibly do with my life, but please do something. That was it. Now, after this point, um, Diana invited um, a friend from church to meet Johnny. And this guy was actually only 16 years old. He was a real young um, guy who was, um, who was really zealous to know. He, he loved the Lord and he loved reading the Bible and sharing this. And Diana herself, you know, she'd struggled to read the Bible and understand it. So um, she... she got this, this guy Steve and he would always try and explain things to her and she would always take things and, and he would be the one to explain. And she didn't mind. I mean, she was 20 at this point and, or around 20 and, and same with Johnny, but they didn't mind the fact that this 16-year-old was actually teaching them. And so Diana kind of said, how about we make this a thing? Like, we'll come like, every week and you can explain something from the Bible to us. And this was a really good period for Johnny because she really started to... Um, understand the word and and Steve would explain things to her you know she read that verse set your mind on things above not on things of the earth and this suddenly made a lot of sense to John she had nothing much on the earth for her but she understood now that that's not the important bit anyway the important bit is to really set your mind on things above that's where the difference is made and so she also started to realise that her present reality, the way she was, a quadriplegic, completely dependent, was God's will for her. And not only that, but she also started to see it as a blessing. And that was a huge change for her. And uh, in fact, she actually recalled that time when she was a frustrated 16-year-old or something, 17-year-old, and she'd gone riding on a horse and she'd come back. And that prayer she'd prayed 
in frustration and she'd said to the Lord, you've got to do something to get my attention, to turn me around. And she wondered whether all this that had happened to her was actually the Lord getting her attention. And that was a really different way of looking at her accident. But there were more changes. And I skip over a few years now, but there were many more changes. And uh, Steve ended up moving away. Diana got married. Her other friends were married. People started having children. And everyone's lives were progressing in the way that Johnny had thought her life would go as well. And she was still stuck at home, strapped into a wheelchair, having to be fed. And she could see all her friends, you know, they started to be busy. They started to, you know, they, they had to do things for the kids. They, had to, they were meeting up to try and do something in play groups for the kids. And she was, again, left behind and very lonely. At this point, she met a man by the name of Donald. Donald was a pretty big guy of Italian descent. And he was a really mature Christian. And they started to get to know each other a little bit more. And Donald didn't seem to be fussed about this whole wheelchair thing. In fact, you know, he would just kind of carry her, put her in the car, strap her up, and then just fling the wheelchair in the car as well. He was, he was really capable. And soon they started to have a bit of a relationship. And for the first time, Johnny actually felt like a, a normal human being, a normal woman. And she, she felt like this, this, was a, this was a man for her. But Jay and Diana didn't feel it was right. They kept saying to her, are you sure? Uh, we, just don't, we just don't want you to be hurt again. I, I, don't, I don't really think Donald is the right person. But Donald had helped her so much, you know, he had really opened the scripture to her, just like Steve had done all those years back. And, you know, she, she'd really learned a lot from him. He was a really um, firm Christian. And she kept, you know, reading in the scripture, she would read things like, no good thing will the Lord withhold. And she read that and she said, you know, to Diana, you know, you keep saying there's something not right about this. But look, I just read this this morning. And Diana kept saying to her, Johnny, are you sure that's just not you picking out verses that suit you for now? Are you sure that's what the Lord has given you? And Johnny kept thinking, what is it? Why, why, why do you just want me to live miserably my whole life? You know, why, why are you wanting to sort of take something that seems to have come at just the right time? Well, um, she, she did keep what Jay and Diana had said in the back of her mind, but she still continued this relationship. And Donald started talking about marriage. Started, they started thinking about the future and how things would work and look, and, and it, it all seemed to be coming together. But after several months had passed, you know, Johnny found herself all consumed by this relationship. She found it really difficult when Donald would go and speak to different youth groups and other women would come and young ladies would come and talk to Donald and she was in the wheelchair in the corner and she just felt really insecure and really jealous and really kind of worried that, you know, one of these other women would get the attention of Donald and, and, why, would, and why wouldn't they? She's stuck in a wheelchair, you know. She would, she would need her husband to give her 100% care, like feeding, lifting, all of this, you know. And she just thought, why, why would he choose me over all of these other people in the world? And so she started to get really jealous, really insecure, and it was just an all-consuming kind of emotion. And suddenly there started to be a few more arguments, 
And then Donald started talking about healing. And he really kind of said to her, we need to have faith. We need to really have faith because I believe the Lord will heal you miraculously and show his power. And so the two of them used to go from healing service to healing service. There would be all-night prayer meetings and they'd go here and there. And Johnny was never healed. And Johnny had dealt with these emotions already. You know, she, she talked about this with people like Steve and Diana, about the idea of being healed. And she'd kind of come to terms with the fact that perhaps the Lord was going to use her accident for his glory, as opposed to use healing for his glory. And now everything was reversed again, because Donald, and she really respected Donald, was starting to talk about how the Lord would use the healing. But after healing service after healing service, and it, nothing happened, nothing changed. And suddenly, you know, Donald was starting to get frustrated. And so was Johnny. And then, after a couple of months after this, Donald came to see Johnny and said, I just can't do it. I've, I'm sorry, I've, I've just got to go. And he literally just walked out of her life. It was sudden, it was very difficult for Johnny. But she realized from this experience that she had learned a lot because, again, she was left completely alone. But this time, she didn't fall apart. And she realized that Jesus is all you ever have. And she really clung on to that. She'd understood that you're not responsible for the circumstances you're in at times, but you are responsible for the way you respond to those circumstances. Now, after this time, she really threw herself into her art. And these are some of the paintings and drawings she'd done. And she, she really kind of did a lot with this, and she, she tried to capture different things, how she was feeling, um, just... Uh, even different passages, a response to a, a passage she would create an artwork. And soon the house was full of art, and she gave lots of gifts away and so on. One day a Christian businessman, quite a well-known guy in the town, came to visit the father, Johnny's father. And as he was in the study talking, he just sort of made a comment about the sketch, and he said, you know, that's a nice sketch, where'd you get that? And the father, in great pride, said, well, actually, my, my daughter did it, my youngest daughter. She, she looked, she'd done this one, this one. And he started showing this, this businessman around. And the businessman was very impressed. And then later that morning, when he was about to leave, he met Johnny. And then he was, he was a bit startled. And then he said, sorry for the awkward question, but how did you do those artworks? And Johnny just laughed and said, well, you know, this is how I do it. And she showed, she put a pencil in her mouth and she started drawing. And this guy said, you really need to do something with this. You need to do something with your art. How about I organise an exhibition in the town hall? You get your art together, I'll get the exhibition together. And so this ex exhibition happened and Johnny had all her artwork on display. And first she thought, oh, this is going to be annoying. You know, people are going to go, oh, how nice of little person in a wheelchair did some art. And, and then and she thought, oh, you know, people are just going to feel sorry for me. But when people were actually there, they were actually looking at the art and people offered, you know, to buy this piece and that piece. And they weren't talking to her about being in a wheelchair or anything. They were talking about the art. She was really shocked. And then um, 
there were a lot of people there. This, this businessman had invited heaps of people. But at one point, he ushered this young man. This young man was really awkward. He had his hands in his pockets, and he was kind of just really shy, and he kept looking at the ground. And, and this businessman, uh, Mr. Miller was his name, just ushered this young guy to Johnny and said to Johnny, you two need to talk. And Johnny was a bit awkward about this, this young guy, and standing there, tried to make small talk, and he just wasn't even responding. And then suddenly he just blurted out and he just said, how can you even be happy? And she just looked at him and he was standing there with his hands in his pockets and she, she just kind of looked at him questioningly. And then he pulled his hands out of his pockets, but there were no hands. He just had stumps. Both hands had been amputated in a fire accident. He'd been a fireman and he'd thrown himself into that career. And then he'd had this horrific accident, amputated both hands, and now he could no longer work. There were so many things he couldn't do that previously he'd invested in. And suddenly kind of Johnny understood. And then he said, how can you possibly be happy, feel that there is something in life? And Johnny kind of looked at him and said, well, it's a long story. Anyway, um, over... That time, you know, that was one of many opportunities she had to share her story. And really, um, there was, it was really the start of a new chapter. This art exhibition led to people wanting to talk to her more. She was invited to different youth groups, churches. From there, she was invited to school. From school, she went to different disability organisations. From there, she was invited to speak at different functions, uh, art organisations. Then from there, she was given a radio interview. And after that, she was asked on to the Today Show, and from there, she was even invited to visit the First Lady at the White House. And it was like doors were just opening like this. And she suddenly realised that her life was different now, yes, but that the Lord was filling it with opportunities. And every single time she had one of these opportunities, she realised that the Lord wanted her to share her story and some part of her story or something that she'd learned. And she realised that he was providing her with these openings to do exactly that. And that, yes, he had answered all those short, angry, sometimes defiant prayers where she had said, you better make this work for your good. He had answered them all. Um, she had finally, I guess, learned, and these are some of the things she wrote, writes about the things she's learned. She learned that true wisdom is trusting God, not questioning him. And she actually says now, well, she's still alive today, she says that she wouldn't change, she truly, truly wouldn't change anything now because she's understood, she, she actually feels privileged that God did something in her life to get her attention because the things that have changed in her are eternal and the things that have changed physically for her uh, uh, will pass. And I guess she's now understood as well. That's her now. She's also really understood this verse. Um, a verse that she'd mocked and dismissed way back when she was in hospital. But now she really sees this verse as a, pretty much an example of her own personal experience. That all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And she really sees that that is the verse that kind of sums up her experience.
And that's the story for today. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah, she's married. Yeah, so there we go. Um, she was married um, a bit later to um, a Japanese guy by the name of Ken. Yep. So These are recent pictures. <laughs> 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 yes, yes. She's written quite a few books as well. So she um, she still does a lot of work now. Um, she has uh, organisations that provide wheelchairs for kids in different countries where you know. There aren't, there aren't these facilities. Um, she's done a lot of work for disability in that, in that regard. And she, she also um, has written books, and she still sells her artwork. She has a bookshop called Logos, um, and she uses that to, to sell her artwork. And this also has meant that she's self-sufficient as well. Um, she's not dependent on people to care for her financial needs as well.